Hello and welcome. Uh, this is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 327, and today we're going to be talking about um, Truman and Eisenhower. This isn't really the, the first of the, uh, of the lectures. Um, I'm recording it first, but I believe there's going to be another one about the, the Cold War, kind of talk about Gaddis' book, which hopefully you have listened to. And also kind of an overview to the class. But uh, this is where we're, we're really getting into content. We're really getting into content. Uh, we're going to be talking about Harry Truman and Eisenhower, um, two of the presidents, you know, early on in, early, well, in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, two of the presidents. And they're about as different as two individuals can be. However, they're both very important for the beginning of the Cold War. Their personalities, uh, their way that they were presidents, really impacts the way the Cold War is talked about and just kind of the general attitude behind it. So with that said, uh, if you haven't done it already, why don't you click on that PowerPoint that goes along with this, and we're going to get started talking about uh, these individuals. So there you go, Truman Eisenhower, go over one slide. Mild about Harry. Uh, Harry Truman... Um, He's a very unlikely person to become president. Uh, when, when you look at the list of presidents, you know, people who seem destined to become president, you have quite a lot of them. Um, you have people like, I mean, of course, George Washington seems destined to become president. Um, you know, Eisenhower actually seems destined to become president. Uh, other individuals like that, who it's like, it just seems that, you know, they've been working on this very hard, very long, and now the presidency is the, the culmination of their political lives. Harry Truman is not one of these individuals. Uh, Harry Truman, he comes from small town Missouri. He has virtually no expectations placed upon him. Uh, to call his upbringing lackluster would be generous. And, and that is nothing against his upbringing. Uh, just in comparison to the types of individuals who get very involved in politics, uh, he is not one of them. Uh, he is a son of a farmer. He is a son of the farmer. Uh, from small town Missouri, um, kind of you know farming town, a couple hours outside of uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, like I said, he he's never really too successful at anything. Um, he you know he isn't very successful before World War One. Uh, World War One comes around. Uh, he actually tries to get an appointment at West Point. He tries to go to West Point. Uh, however, his eyesight is too bad. His eyesight is, is too bad. He does not have the eyesight to get into West Point. So when World War One comes around, I mean, there's a draft, and they're able to let some things you know, slide, especially once uh, it's a little bit later in the war. Uh, he get, works as an artillerist. He is in the artillery in World War One. He gets a very low rank. Um, low rank. He's not like a, an upper-level officer by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, by all accounts he's a he's a fine soldier but not a very exemplary soldier um he is in fact that's something that people say a lot about harry truman before he becomes uh, really president is that he's adequate uh he's not bad he's not bad he, he's not a bad individual by any stretch of the imagination but he's certainly not a overachiever um after the war after the war he returns back he returns back to missouri uh, goes to kansas city and he opens up a haberdashery. Now, haberdashery is one of those $5 words you might hear here or there. Um, I can't think of any haberdasheries that are around here in Thibodeau. Um, there's one, in, there used to be one in Baton Rouge. I don't, I don't think that there, it's there anymore. I'm sure there's a couple in New Orleans just because of the type of clientele. But a haberdashery is a, 
Upscale Men's Clothing Store. It's an upscale men's clothing store. Actually, the term haberdasher originally meant a hat maker, one who makes hats. But it, it, by this time, it really means just an upscale clothing store. It fails. It fails, and it fails hard. It leaves him very deep in debt. In fact, his debt um, remains with him until about a year before he becomes president. Um, I, I should also mention he is one of our poorest presidents, if not our poorest president. Uh, this actually becomes an issue after he retires from being president. After he, re- he retired from being president? After he's you know no longer president. Uh, he desperately needs money. Like He tries to write a book to get some money. Ultimately, they, they open up a pension for him. And he isn't going to take it except uh, Herbert Hoover, who is still around. Herbert Hoover actually lives until the 1960s. He, Herbert Hoover is a multimillionaire several times over. He's like, look, I'll take the pension too, just to save Harry Truman the embarrassment of, taking, of having a presidential pension, which presidents still get to this day. Uh, if you're ex-president of the United States, you get a, a pension. Not a huge pension by any stretch of the imagination, but he gets one. He's also one of our very few presidents not to have a college degree, uh, particularly later on. Uh, some of our early presidents don't have college degrees because uh, there's really no college that, you know, colleges. Uh, very much a rich man's thing. We're talking like your your Andrew Jacksons and stuff. But by this time, by the modern era, uh, college is seen as very much as a, as a mandatory thing to become president. Uh, he, I want to say he is our last president not to have a uh, college degree. He's very much unlike the rest of the other presidents in that he does not have a very affluent background at all. Uh, very nice guy, very decent guy, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, they say he always has the common touch. He's a very good speaker, very pragmatic, not good speaker, but, um, relating with people. He's not a great orator. He's not, he's not a great speech maker, but he's somebody who's very good at relating to people, talking to people, get, getting to know them. Now, how does this individual, who's a nice guy, how does he go so high? Well, if you go over one slide, you're going to see Tom Pendergrast. Uh, Pod, Tom Pendergrast is the boss of Kansas City. He is the political boss of Kansas City. He is the <coughs> political machinery boss of, of Kansas City. Uh, he is an Irish Catholic. He is an Irish Catholic. Uh, remember this time, Catholics aren't really uh, going up for the presidency too much. They're still seen as uh, kind of uh, iffy individuals. Uh, Tom Pendergrasso, he is the Irish Catholic boss, and also Irish, I mean, good God, there's all sorts of um, stereotypes about Irish people during this time period. Um, I am Irish. <laughs> well, I'm not, like, from Ireland, but a lot of my family ancestry is Irish, so, you know, it wasn't like I came over the boat recently. Um, so Pendergrass is pretty much, he is Harry Truman's benefactor. He is the guy who pretty much takes Harry Truman under his wing, uh, pretty much, I don't want to say he buys himself a, a politician in Harry Truman, but I'm not going to not say that, uh, because it becomes very evident, particularly uh, once he becomes a senator, that he's doing a lot of things for Pendergrass's benefit. Now, I do need to mention this about Harry Truman. Um, an interesting little tidbit, a little fact, uh, Harry Truman is our only U.S. president to have ever been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, before you get all freaked out and, you know, oh my God, he is a member of the Klan for about a week in the 1920s. About in the 1920s, if you're unfamiliar with the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, it tries to actually it literally rehire, hired a PR firm, tries to like reframe itself as a quote unquote good, you know, American organization. 
Uh, the earlier Klan of the Reconstruction was more about, um, you know, being anti-black. This one is more pro-white, anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, stuff like that. And for a while in the 1920s, um, it was viewed as a respectable organization to join. Was it respectable? Good God, no. Do not get it twisted. It's the mother-effing Ku Klux Klan. It's, it's horrible. But he joins for about a week. He does leave the Klan, though, after about a week. Um, there, it's very iffy. He might have attended a meeting. Somebody might have paid for his membership. Um, he's never a long-term member of the Klan by any stretch, nor is he like particularly racist, uh, as we're going to see. Uh, once we get into his presidency, he kind of bucks the, the expectation of uh, Southern Democrats. But the main reason why um, Truman leaves the Klan very quickly is that he discovers that they are anti-Jewish. Uh, they are anti-Jewish in this time, still are. Uh, the original Klan of Reconstruction really didn't care about Jews. There weren't too many Jews to you know, hate on. However, now, thanks to immigration, there are more Jews. Anti-Semitism is becoming more common in the United States. And Tom Pendergrass's business partner is a man by the name of Jacobson, which is a fairly Jewish last name. Jacobson is Jewish. Once again, he's one of uh, Harry Truman's political benefactors. And so that's why Harry Truman is only a member of the Klan for a very short time. We're going to talk about that in a second. It becomes kind of important. If you give her one slide, though, thanks to Pendergrass, uh, he is able to rise up very quickly, very quickly in the political ranks. Uh, Kansas City, Missouri is a growing city. It's a large city, uh, kind of a transient city with more people coming in, immigrants, um, African-Americans who... Uh, sometimes get to vote in Kansas City, not too often. Pendergrass kind of uses them when he needs to. Uh, but, however, it's really thanks to Pendergrass that Harry Truman rises through the ranks so quickly, despite being somebody who's not your conventional politician. Uh, in 1932, he becomes a director for the New Deal in Missouri. All right, uh, The New Deal, the, the, uh, the great program, the New Deal, uh, great in terms of immense. I don't mean good or not good. I play these things kind of straight down the middle, but very large program, the New Deal, very popular program, particularly with Democrats. He becomes the director of the New Deal in uh, Missouri. He becomes connected to Roosevelt in name only. I don't think Roosevelt knows who he is. However, he really frames himself as the New Deal candidate, really speaking for the little guy, even though he's very much with Pendergrass. Two years later, all right, just two years after he becomes the director of the New Deal, in 1934, he becomes the senator, well, a senator from the state of Missouri. All right, he's a senator. This is a very quick jump. Remember, about 10 years ago, he was broke. 10 years prior, he was dead broke. Hell, he's still broke in 1934. Uh, sorry, my chair is squeaky, because he still has all that debt from the haberdashery that failed. But now, Harry Truman, he's ready to go. He is now the United States Senator from the great state of Missouri. Uh, his critics said that he was, this, he was the Senator from Pendergrass. Um, very, very common. Very, <laughs> very common. If you haven't caught it yet, Pendergrass is very connected with um, Truman, at least as he's a Senator and as he's doing stuff for Missouri. Uh, he becomes senator for Missouri, like I said, in 34, right when the first murmurs of World War II are kind of going on. Remember, the U.S. doesn't get involved directly in World War II until 1941 with Pearl Harbor. Uh, theoretically, the war doesn't really begin until, you know, Germany invades 
Poland, but if you want to get even more honest, there's stuff going on in China even beforehand. Look, what you need to know, this is not a World War II class, but what you need to know is even as early as the mid-30s, people knew something was up. Japan was making moves. You know, Hitler was doing his stuff in Germany. They know things are kind of kind of coming. And as the war is starting to start up in Europe, um, Truman is very meh on the matter. He is very blah. He, um, he he doesn't really take one side or the other. He's not like a, a great. He's not really a great ally to anybody. He doesn't really like the Germans, of course, but he doesn't really like the Russians. Uh, he has this quote as senator, basically: "If if Germany is winning, we help Russia, and if Russia is winning, we help Germany." Uh, that that's probably <laughs> all you need to know about Harry Truman as senator during World War II. It's this idea that eh, you know. Um, Whoever's winning, we help up the other side, and if a bunch of people die for that other country, that kind of helps us because he doesn't trust Stalin at all. He doesn't trust Russia. He doesn't trust Germany. He doesn't trust Hitler. He's like, look, if they can just kill each other, that's good for us. And as the war goes on, as the U.S. gets more and more involved, uh, he remains very pragmatic, not very committed to foreign policy. Uh, that's something else about Truman early on, which is unique because once we get into his presidency, he's still not president. He's still a senator, not even vice president. He's still a senator from Missouri. He's like, look, you know, Missouri doesn't border anything. We're about, you know, if we throw a dart at the United States and hit the middle, you might hit Missouri. We don't care. You know, I, I don't really care about this. We'll go with whoever's winning. Uh, we should be more committed to, like, you know, domestic stuff. So it's kind of interesting, though, that, you know, only a couple short years after being a senator, and also he's very critical of Roosevelt, particularly for the war spending. He's quite critical of Roosevelt for the war spending. Um, you know, he's, he's on some various committees in, in the Senate, uh, very critical of spending so much money on the war, spending so much money on the war effort. He doesn't know if it's really necessary. Kind of interesting. So it's very unique in 1944 that, if you go over one slide, you will see that uh, FDR picks Harry Truman to become his vice president. Uh, FDR picks Harry Truman to become his vice president. Really weird that he would pick him because he's kind of a nobody. Um, but Henry Wallace, who had been um, Roosevelt's vice president, was starting to like directly challenge Roosevelt. And so he has to go. He has to go. And FDR really picks uh, Truman to appease the Southern Democrats. Uh, Southern Democrats make up the bulk of the membership of the Democratic Party in this time period, but not the bulk of the leadership. I'll repeat that. Southern Democrats make up the bulk of the membership of the Democratic Party, but not the leadership of the Democratic Party. And they are very upset about some of the things that Roosevelt is doing, uh, where it comes to civil rights-y stuff. Uh, Roosevelt, actually, Roosevelt's like not doing much on civil rights, but he's doing enough to make the Southern Democrats upset. Southern Democrats are the segregationists in this time period. Uh, also, they're not crazy about some of the spending that Roosevelt is doing. Um, Democrats, Southern Democrats in this time tend to be a bit more physically conservative. And so he's facing, FDR is facing a possible rebellion within the Democratic Party. And so he picks Harry Truman, theoretically, to appease some of the uh, upset people, Southern Democrats, in the Democratic Party. Uh, this is a little controversial because that Klan thing comes back, as you can see in the picture. Uh, Dewey, who is the uh, nominee for the Republicans, basically says, Oh my God, we have an honest-to-God member of the Ku Klux Klan. Remember, he's only a member for a week, and he left after he found out they are anti-Jewish. And as you can see, he's president. He doesn't exactly hate black people. 
still, Truman is seen as a, a clan figure. You can see, you know, uh, FDR saying, I should be very happy to run with Truman. He'll bring real strength to the ticket. You know, basically kill the clan. This doesn't work very well. This doesn't work very well, I should say. Um, yeah, Dewey, Dewey loses fairly handedly to FDR in 1944. FDR is running for a fourth term. I should also mention that FDR doesn't really seem to think too, too much of Truman as his vice president. Uh, Truman is pretty much kept in the dark on everything. Um, now, granted, Truman is only vice president for a couple months before FDR dies. But still, even for a president and vice president who, by the way, presidents and vice presidents don't necessarily do all that much together. Um, they may or may not be friends. They may or may not even like get advice from each other. Um, oftentimes, vice presidents are political appointees or somebody picked by the party to like kind of shore up um, membership or leadership, maybe to give credibility to it. Uh, we're going to see that later on with Eisenhower and the choice of Richard Nixon. Eisenhower didn't like Nixon. However, uh, Nixon was picked because he was viewed as the more conservative Republican and basically to give strength to the ticket. So FDR, this is not unusual, but FDR doesn't really think too, too much of Truman. He's like, all right, he, he's a guy. Um, so he doesn't really tell him anything about the war effort. By 44, the war's kind of closing up. Uh, Truman is also unique because he's kept in the dark because he doesn't find out about the atomic bomb until, like, the first day he becomes president. FDR told him nothing of the Manhattan Project, which, to be fair, I mean, that's a pretty big deal, and you would necessarily tell everybody about that, but um, Truman finds out about the atomic bomb, like, the day he becomes president, and then a couple weeks later he's told, hey, so you, you want to use it on Japan? And um, pretty much he's the reason why the atomic bomb is used the way it is, the idea that the president has pretty much um, unilateral power over, you know, when the bomb gets dropped or not, that is pretty much from Truman. That is pretty much from Truman. And Truman said, I mean, you could argue that Harry Truman is responsible for the deaths of more people than any other U.S. president, because he was the one who gave the order to drop the bomb on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, directly responsible for deaths. Um, he claimed, he claimed that he didn't lose any sleep over it. He claimed basically that he took a night to think about it, and he was like, you know what, it's, it's a big bomb, but um, it's going to save some lives, theoretically, it's going to save American soldiers' lives. Like I said, it's not a World War II class, I'm not going to get into that. But uh, basically, he's like, yeah, I, I, I did it, I know a lot of people would die, I have a lot of blood on my hands, but uh, I had to do it for the United States, do it for America, and so I, I'm perfectly alright with that. So Truman is the president post-war, and, and he faces some, uh, some challenges as the post-war president, because with FDR dying, uh, now FDR, who, by the way, FDR knew he was sick, he didn't think he was dying, but FDR was like, yeah, I might retire or resign after the war is over. FDR doesn't live long enough to see that. Um, the whole post-war thing is now on Truman, and, and a lot of this kind of leads into the Cold War, which we got into, hopefully beforehand we get into the Cold War. How it kind of begins. Uh, that, but that said, though, there are some things that are some challenges. Uh, the first challenge that uh, Truman has is what to do about the New Deal. Uh, Truman is a defender of the New Deal. He loves the New Deal. He was a New Deal director. He, he thinks the New Deal is a great idea. Um, he defends it, but not like especially hard so. He's like, look, we, we sh you know, the, the Depression is over. 
Um, you know, the United States after World War II, it's doing economically bonkers. Manufacturing is, is running at full capacity. That's doing great. We're going to talk about manufacturing a little bit more next class or next lecture. That said, though, Truman is, uh, you know, he's like, we may not have to spend it as much. You know, he's going to put up a defense of it because he likes it, but if you know, he's not going to resist too hard. Uh, the thing he does do, which kind of upsets some people, is that he gets rid of the wartime wage and price control um, too slow for some people and too fast for others. Uh, during the war, you might be familiar with this. Like I said, it's not a World War II class, but we have to do a little bit of World War II. Uh, during the war, there are all sorts of price controls, rationing. Uh, you weren't allowed to strike or demand a raise. All that stuff is going on uh, for the war effort. And there are price controls put into place. Now, the thing is, as soon as you drop that price control, you're going to have inflation. You're going to have inflation. And there's a big fear, and I talked about this a lot more during the Cold War, and you hear about this in Gaddis, that if we drop the price controls too quick, we're not going to have enough markets to sell stuff. Uh, inflation is going to go out of hand really quick. That's how you get a Great Depression. Is part of the cold, uh, the sorry, the post World War One uh, deindustrialization. We didn't have very good controls over it. That's why we had all the manufacturing. We had too much stuff. Production was too high. We didn't have enough spending. And plus, the main issue is if we get rid of these price controls, we're going to have inflation. It's going to be really bad. So he gets rid of it, and he kind of Goldilocks it, which really upsets people. Some people think it's too slow. Some other people think it's too fast. Uh, same thing with reorganizing the military. Uh, you can't have post, sorry, you can't have war numbers post-war. It's, there's no purpose. You know, the military is way too big. Um, you don't need that many people being drafted. You don't have to train that many people. We're not at war, so you don't need to be building all these tanks and airplanes and stuff like that. You know, let them go back to making cars and. I don't know, grocery carts and whatever the hell else these com these country, uh, companies are making. So, the, you know, but we don't want to get rid of them too quick. And, I mean, that is an issue, particularly with soldiers. Um, you hear stories of soldiers who, like, you know, they have to remain deployed for a year after the atomic bomb is dropped. Even though we're not at war, they're like, huh, can't I go home? That messes with morale because soldiers are like, what the hell am I doing? There's no war going on. I'm just, like, you know, peeling potatoes and washing Jeeps for no reason. Uh, the other issue is strikes and labor issues. There are a lot of strikes and labor issues. Uh, strikes were banned during the war. You know, you couldn't ask for a raise during the war because there was a war going on. Uh, everything was needed for the war effort. And so, you know, most workers accepted it. They're like, hey, all right, you know, we're, we can't ask for a raise. We can't go on strike because the war's going on. But once the war's over, let's, you know, let's get that money. Let's get our bag. Uh, that happens very quickly. Very quickly, once the um, labor controls are eased, you have a lot of strikes, a lot of uh, labor issues, a lot of people demanding more money. Um, of course, there's the, de the demilitarization with soldiers no longer being soldiers. They want to go back to their jobs, jobs that African-Americans and women were having now, and so there's a bit of a kerfuffle about that. You also have a lot of riots on military bases of soldiers demanding to be sent home. We talked about this earlier. Um, you know, demilitarization, de you can't do it too quick. It might mess up the economy, might mess up society. But soldiers don't want to be stuck on military bases if there's no war going on. Um, especially those that were domestic. That, that, I, I think that was the more frustrating one. Um, you know, it's one thing if you're overseas and you're like, okay, look, you know, we got to keep an eye out on the Japanese or the Germans, make sure they don't do anything sneaky. But like, you know, let's say you live in Louisiana and you're in San Diego for a year for no reason. Well, actually, San Diego's nice. Okay, you might like being in San Diego. 
but it's not home. You know what I mean? It's not home. It's not, uh, you know, where your wife might be or your girlfriend or your parents or, oh, God forbid, your children. That might be a bigger one, too. Uh, I'm a new father here. I can't imagine somebody keeping me away from my son for seemingly no reason. So I could get, you know, being being a bit riotous about that. Uh, in 1947, the Taft-Harley Act was passed. Uh, reverses a lot of the government's New Deal positions on labor. Right? There's a lot of things the, the New Deal did with labor that got rid of this. Uh, a lot of labor's people don't like it. Uh, for instance, the closed shop rule was repealed. Um, during, the, during World War II, during the Great Depression, businesses could mandate that everybody could be a member of the union. You have mandatory union membership as part of a, of a, of a business. Uh, as it's called the closed shop. Open shop means you don't have to be a member of the union. Closed shop means you have to be a member of the union. It's something they did during the, uh, not the Cold War, good God, the Great Depression to make sure prices were, you know, kind of stable. Um, they got rid of that. Uh, a lot of labor people don't like that. feels like it's a betrayal by, um, by Truman because, you know, FDR was really big on labor unions. Now Truman's going against it. Also, the president said he could compose a no-strike cooling-off periods when negotiations failed and the industry deemed vital for national security. This one's also a little unpopular. Once again, it makes sense during the war that we can't go on strike because, you know, Hitler's out there or the Japanese are out there. But now, um, the president, and by the way, the president by himself, could impose a no-strike period, a cooling-off period. If tensions are rising between labor and management, he could decree, all right, guys, y'all got to keep working, no strike, you know, you can't do this. It's it's an important thing for something deemed vital for national security. Now, here's the thing. What's deemed that vital for national security? Whatever the president wants, really. Uh, there's a lot of power invested in Truman that people kind of get away with, that he kind of gets away with because, number one, I mean, FDR took way more power, and number two, Truman's kind of a decent guy. He doesn't really abuse his power too, too much. But still, it's the principle of it. It's the principle of it. And, and by being so pragmatic, um, Truman is very middle way about all sorts of stuff. Um, he's not a very popular president. It's actually during Truman's day that they start doing um, they start doing uh, popularity, uh, you know, approval numbers for presidents, uh, approval polls for presidents. And Truman actually gets some fairly low approval numbers. He never gets very high approval numbers. Uh, later on, they get super low for stuff we're going to talk about. But he's very middle way on most issues. I mean, which can be good. It can be good to be a pragmatist. In fact, I recommend being a pragmatist. But you know, when you're when you're going too slow for some people and too fast for other people, nobody's happy with you. It might be the best way to do it, but nobody's happy with you. And he is deeply unpopular by 1946. So even one year into being president, he is deeply unpopular. It's about to get worse. It's about to get a lot, a lot worse. Um, I should also mention about Truman. He does things. I should mention him about um, civil rights because I kind of alluded to it. I don't think I'm going to get into it directly. Um, Truman desegregates the armed forces. He basically says it's stupid. We shouldn't do this. You know, it, it costs way too much money to maintain you know a black military base and a white military base. Why don't we just have one military base? Um, also does things like desegregate Washington D.C. Things like that. Uh, actually, no, Eisenhower does that. Uh, but still, he, he is a bit more pragmatic about civil rights. He's not, like, actively hating African Americans. He doesn't do enough to make, like, the civil rights people happy, but he also pisses off the Southern segregationists. So it's another evidence of Truman being a middle-way guy. 
All right, I know we are very long on one slide of Truman as a Klansman, uh, which had nothing really to do with what I was talking about, but go over one slide. Sounding the alarm, guys. Sounding the alarm. Uh, This is kind of early Cold War stuff. Uh, In this picture, you're going to see Winston Churchill and Harry Truman. There's Harry Truman right there sitting, kind of laughing. Uh, Churchill was actually voted out of office. He was no longer Prime Minister of England in the summer of 1945. Like, just as the war ends, he is kicked out. He is voted out. Uh, basically, he, is, he had become unpopular. Even though everybody liked him during the war, he had become unpopular. Uh, pretty much the definition of um, a wartime Prime Minister. Uh, he's still hailed as a hero by most Americans. Most Americans still like Churchill. He's still viewed as, you know, heroic. He's our guy during uh, the World War II. Uh, you know, he gives all these fun speeches. So, you know, he, 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 he's always good for a good quip. Smoke a cigar, drink some brandy. Why not? Let's have Winston Churchill come over. And he gives a speech in Fulton, Missouri. All right? He decides to give a speech in Fulton, Missouri. Uh, and boy, what a speech it is. Now, let's talk about what Truman is with the Allies. We talk about Truman domestically. Let's talk about him within foreign affairs. Uh, Truman did not endear himself at all with the Allies, uh, particularly Russia. Uh, particularly Russia. But even Britain's not too happy with him. Um, he cancels Lynn Lease almost immediately after Japan surrendered. Uh, that's with Britain. Uh, Britain, basically, Lynn Lease was whatever the United States was giving supplies and money to Britain because of the war, uh, because their manufacturing facilities had been devastated by, like, you know, the Blitz and the fact that they just fought a war for several years. Uh, basically, as soon as Japan surrenders, Truman's like, all right, cool, y'all don't get any more money. He's like, we're, we're done with this. You know, the war's over. Y'all don't need us no more, so do your own thing. Do whatever you got to do. Uh, Britain doesn't like this very much. They feel that they need more support to help rebuild. They're like, you know, can you help us out for a couple more years, maybe, as we, like, get our infrastructure back going? You know, the factories we do have were destroyed by, like, the Germans, so why don't you, uh, you know, just get a little bit more supplies? Truman's like, nope, y'all are out. Uh, he also has very testy relations with Stalin. Um, Stalin never likes Truman. That's... (laughs) Stalin thinks he's like a farm boy that Truman could, uh, sorry, that uh, that he can bully. You know, he thinks that Truman's like this this yokel that he can basically like bully. He's like, look, I'm Joseph Stalin. I, I, I've probably killed more people than anybody except maybe Truman, but I don't know. I'm Joseph Stalin. I, I kill a lot of people. And so basically he thinks he can bully Truman. But also he never forgave Truman for a while Truman was a senator. While Truman was a senator... Uh, he said that, quote, the Germans ought to kill as many Russians as possible during the war. Uh, that's not a way to really endear yourself, particularly when the Russians lost, like, 62.5 times the amount of people that the Americans did. Remember, the Russians lost 25 million. The Americans lost, like, 400,000. So, yeah, Stalin's got a little bit of an axe to grind. And so they never have a great relationship. Um... Stalin respected FDR as much as anybody could respect FDR, which is, uh, sorry, as anybody could respect be respected by Stalin. Um, everybody respected FDR. FDR was kind of respected by Stalin as much as Stalin respected anybody, which is not much. Um, however, Stalin does not like FDR. Uh, sorry, does not like Truman, not at all. And 
Truman like berates Stalin for like not having free elections in uh, Poland. Um, you know, basically there's supposed to be free elections in Poland. Stalin says we're not going to do that, and basically he's like, "You lie, little heifer. Don't do that." He doesn't call him a heifer. However, he does say that like um, Truman actually writes his mother like you know after Stalin lies to him to his face. He's like, I can't believe it. I even like the little son of a bitch. He, he calls Stalin a little son of a bitch, which is just kind of funny. Also, Stalin is short. Um, he's about five foot seven, five foot eight, which kind of short for a dude. Kind of short for a dude. Uh, also, he really berates Stalin for not pulling troops out of Iran. Um, basically, uh, Iran had been occupied by all three allies during the war to prevent the Germans from getting the oil fields. Um, they were all supposed to pull out six months later. Uh, Russia needs oil bad because, I don't know if you know this, but like Russia was a wasteland after World War II. And so Russia needs the resources. Uh, Russia's oil fields, such as they have, they're not you know accessible. And so now Stalin's like, we, we want these sweet, sweet oil fields. Um, Truman's like, you got to pull out. We don't want you to do that. It's, it's, it's a very testy situation. We'll talk more about Iran later when we get into the proper Cold War and some of the early steps. But just know Iran had been occupied by all three allies. Uh, Britain pulls out because they pull out of everywhere. They get rid of all their colonies because we're like, that, that was me making a fart sound, not me actually farting. Uh, you know, we don't care. We're just going to leave because we got to rebuild our own country. Uh, America's like, yeah, you know, we're, we're kind of done, you know, bailing out everybody else too. Let's focus on our own country. But America doesn't want uh, Russia to just grab more territory. We talked about that when we talked about the Gaddis stuff. So Churchill actually gives a speech. We're coming back to the speech. I swear to you, we're getting to the speech. Um, Churchill gives his speech. Actually, Truman introduces him. Truman introduces him. It's a very combative speech, all right? It's March 1946. It's March 1946. The war has not even been over for a year. The war has not even been over for a year. And Churchill claims in the speech, he's very... Um, combative towards Russia, claiming that Russia's not doing right. Uh, particularly, he claims that there is a, quote, iron curtain going up all around Eastern Europe. I'll repeat that phrase again, because you might know it. Iron curtain. There's an iron curtain going up all around Europe. Churchill claims there's this iron curtain going on. Basically, this idea that we don't necessarily know what's going on in these Eastern European countries, like Poland, like Yugoslavia, like all these places that the Germans took over, and then the Russians beat the Germans back from. And now, the Russians aren't really giving it back to anybody. They're just like, we're not giving it back to our home country, and communication's getting very bad. And Churchill suggests strength and vigilance against the Russians, suggesting if somebody had done that to Hitler and the Nazis... Uh, we wouldn't have had a World War II. So already, not even one year after World War II is over, Churchill is alluding to a future war, a World War III, against the Russians. Now, as you know from their previous lecture, Stalin thinks there's going to be a, a world war as well, but it's going to be against the capitalist countries, against each other. But the idea that they're already invoking World War III barely a year after World War II is over. It'd be like if we finally got over this pandemic, you know, coronavirus is gone, we have a really good vaccination for COVID-19, and like, you know, three months after that, they're starting talking about COVID-2022. Like, oh my God, COVID-22 is coming out, we got to get ready. It's like, can we get a break? Oh my gosh. Or after a hurricane or something, like, all right, we, we survived Katrina, let's talk about the next hurricane. That's bad because hurricanes are forces of nature, but... 
you know, something where it's like, you worked hard. Oh, even better. Like, uh, you know, you just finished a big paper for a class or something. Or you just finished your final exam. And all of a sudden, the professor's like, all right, cool, let's talk about the next final exam. You're like, Jesus Christ, can we get a chance to, like, breathe? But it's interesting they're already doing that. So now it, the gauntlet's kind of been thrown. There's stuff going on. This Cold War is happening. This Cold War is begun, kind of. Contentions with the Russians have already began. The Russians are being very combative. They're being very sneaky. They're being very possessive towards the land and territory that they're taking over in Eastern Europe. Go over one slide. You'll see a picture of George Keenan. Because now we're getting over a concept and a doctrine. Now, this is talked about in your book, so I'm not going to talk too, too much about it. But, you know, I think it's worth talking about. It's worth talking about. So by the time we get to, like, 1946, 1947, America's trying to figure out, like, WTF is up the deal with the Russians. Why are they being so combative? Now, to be fair, Winston Churchill was kind of combative against them, too. But that was a speech. Now, the Russians are actually doing things like, you know... Smashing dissent, outlawing all parties other than the Communist Party, secret police and junk, and theoretically not even Russia. They're doing it in like Yugoslavia, Poland, uh, Eastern Germany, places like that. And the US is trying to figure out like, why is Russia doing this? You know, we just finished a war, we just beat Hitler. Why the heck is Russia doing this? And so they ask uh, George Keenan, who you read about in the Gaddis book. The Gaddis does a very good job of explaining this, so I'm not going to go too, too in depth into this. But George Keenan, he's based in Moscow at the time. He is asked, you know, what is going on with the Russians? And he writes the long telegram. He writes the long telegram, several thousand word telegram, which basically explains the Russian mindset. He, he argues that the Russians are xenophobes. Uh, they are always distrustful. The way that Stalin had been able to make his power is because he always had a bigger boogeyman. Basically, Stalin is not a nice guy, but he is able to retain power by saying, I'm the nicer guy compared to this other dude. So, I'm nicer than the Tsar. I'm nicer than Lenin. Well, okay, that doesn't really count. But I'm nicer than Trotsky. Uh, okay, that doesn't really count. Uh, I'm nicer than Hitler. There we go. I'm nicer than Hitler. You know, yes, I'm Stalin. I'm a homicidal, genocidal maniac. But you know what? The other side is Hitler. So, as long as there's a bigger boogeyman out there, Stalin is justified to get against power. And the thing is, if the Americans were to directly combat Stalin, it would be justifying every horrible thing that Stalin had ever said about them. Every horrible thing that Stalin had said about them was going to be justified because what they're doing, and remember, Stalin ain't a biggie booger man. Bigger, bigger, ah, bigger boogeyman. Boogie, bigger man? Bigger boogeyman. Say that five times fast. So how do you fight this? Not directly. Not directly. Keenan says, if we fight them directly, we lose. But we have to fight them, because if we don't resist, they're going to run rumshot over all of Europe. They're going to take over everything. That's their whole M.O. But how do you do it? Through what he calls containment. Know the word containment. The containment doctrine. Containment doctrine. Containment, containment, containment. Well, Truman doctrine is the, is the correct phrase. We'll talk about that in a second. But the containment doctrine. Containment. Limiting the spread of communism and Russian power, not even communism, well, commu communism, but really Russian power, Russian influence, without being direct about it. Keenan is arguing for a middle ground. It's not appeasement. This is not like uh, Hitler, where we just let him take over everything. Nor is it direct war, where it's like, we're going against Hitler and we're trying to fight him. And he said it's going to take a long time. Uh, that's something Keenan is very, ke uh, very keen on, very, very open about. 
is that he's like, this is going to take a long time. This is going to take a lot of resources, but it could be one. Now, here's the thing. Does he, America have a lot of time? Kind of, sort of, maybe not really. I mean, who, who does have time? Who doesn't have time? But resources, well, that's something America has a lot of. Remember, we come out of the war actually richer. We have manufacturing at number you know, at highest capacity it's ever been at. So this gives us an outlet for our resources. It's kind of a two birds, one stone thing where it comes to the markets. Remember, we want to keep the markets open so we don't have a depression. And plus, now we can spend all these resources to fight the Russians. Guys, I cannot iterate this enough. This is the foundation. I repeat, this is the foundation of U.S. foreign policy for four decades to come. For literally four more decades, this is the end-all, be-all for U.S. foreign policy. So this is the, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's, it's the general concept. It's the strategy, but not the tactic, if that makes sense. Like, um, a strategy is the general concept, like in board games or in a, in a, in a, in a war or something. Not a war, a football game. You know, strategy. All right, we're going we're gonna to attack the quarterback. We're going to, you know, we're going to blitz a lot. The tactic is like the actual plays, if that makes sense. So we have our strategy for the Cold War, containment. How are we going to do it? Truman Doctrine. The Truman Doctrine. Go over one slide. Go over one more slide. Truman gets a chance to test this whole idea where it comes to Greece and Turkey. Uh, Britain had been kind of propping them up for quite a while. They were ever officially colonies of Britain, but Britain had a lot of business influence in there. They pretty much controlled the government. There was like a king or something in there. And so basically, uh, Greece and Turkey, they were about to pull out. Britain was about to pull out. They're about to like, you know, get rid of their resources. And it's almost certain that these territories are going to go communist. It, it is almost certain that unless there is resources, unless there is money to support the, the loyalists of this time period in Greece, there's going to be a communist insurgency and they are going to fall. Problem is, Greece, well, Turkey is Asia Minor, technically Europe, technically not really Europe, but Greece is solidly in Europe. If Greece falls, domino theory is what happens, they're afraid of. Domino theory. The idea that if one country falls, another country falls, another country falls, another country falls. If Greece falls, then Italy falls, and Spain falls, and Portugal falls, then maybe France falls, and England falls, and all of a sudden we're saluting a red flag. So, Britain's like, look, we're pulling out America. We're, you got about a month. It'll almost certainly go communist. Unless y'all start supporting them. Now, Truman thinks it's a great idea. The problem is, in American government, president has a lot of power, but one power he does not have and he will never have, well, I will never never say never, but the founders are pretty clear they don't want the president to have this, is the power of the purse. The president can't do anything directly with money in the federal government. Anything with money has to go through Congress. And so Truman thinks it's a great idea. We should spend some money, a lot of money, about 40, sorry, $400 million for about $400 million. Now, he goes up to Congress and is like, hey, um, can we do this? Can I have $400 million? And Congress is like, look, we think it's a decent idea. Uh, the problem is our constituents. You know, we understand the importance of $400 million going to make sure Greece and Turkey don't fall. Problem is, John Q. Citizen may not understand that. You know, John Q. Citizen is like, why are we spending so much money? It's not a war. We're not getting territory over it. 
you know, it's not like we have a huge Greek or Turkish population in the United States. Why are we doing this? So Congress tells them, look, we're okay with it, but we're going to get the backlash. You need to convince the American people. If you can convince our constituents that spending about half a billion dollars on these two countries is a good idea, we got it. And so basically, Truman goes on TV and gives a speech. A lot of speeches going on here. A lot of speeches in the early Cold War. Where basically, Truman scares the living crippity crap out of the United States. He scares the crippity, crippity, crippity crap out of them, being like, hey... If we don't support uh, Greece and Turkey, if we don't give them money, we're all going commie. We're all going communist. And this becomes known as the Truman Doctrine. The Truman Doctrine. All right, because this actually works. Uh, basically, they get $400 million, and Greece and Turkey do not go communist. So the Truman Doctrine defined, there's, there's all sorts of definitions, but here's my working definition, all right? Basically, the Truman Doctrine says... If you are resisting the Soviets, we will support you. Period. No price tag. You don't have to give us anything back. You can ask for as much as you want. As much as you want, you will get it as long as you resist the Russians. Now, could this lead to bad things? Yes. Do critics even at the time say, hey, we might be propping up horrible people who are like horrible dictators doing horrible things to their country, but they claim they're anti-communist. Yes, they're, they, they are afraid of this, even this early. Does that happen? Yes, we prop up a lot of horrible people because they claim to be anti-communist. And are they even really anti-communist? That's debatable. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Uh, likewise, could these countries be playing uh, Russia off and the U.S. off of each other? Good Lord, yes, they do. They do it all the time. So, yeah. But still, this is the major tactic for the Cold War. The strategy is containment. The tactic is containment, as um, Truman Doctrine, pay money. Pay money, no price tag attached. There are some major issues like we got into. So this works pretty well for Greece and, uh, Greece and Turkey. Go over one slide. But what about the rest of Europe? What about the, less, the rest of Europe? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Well, there's a plan about them. Because at this time, it's looking that a lot of countries in Europe are going to elect communists. Uh, France is a big one that scares people. France, by the time we get to like 1947, France is looking like it's going to be electing communists. And, and that's one thing. It's one thing if there's a communist takeover of a country. It's another if you like elect them. And it's not like one of those like Hitler elections where you like kind of stacks the deck for him and it's only a, you know, a plurality. Like it looks like communists might take over um, France and they might be elected in. Same thing with other countries. So to combat this, uh, another speech happens. George Marshall, seen there in the suit. Uh, well, they're all wearing suits. Not in the graduation gowns. Uh, he is the Secretary of State. He is the Secretary of State. Um, he gives a speech at Harvard. All right, He goes for Harvard graduation, gives a speech basically arguing we should have a new deal for Western Europe. He's like, hey, remember that thing we did with Greece and Turkey? That was pretty cool. Hey, remember that new deal thing we had where we spent a bunch of money to make sure that we didn't go horrible during the Great Depression? We should do that in Western Europe. We should give out massive loans that don't have to be paid back very quickly and oftentimes get forgiven. Um, it's a misconception that the Marshall Plan was a blank check for Europe. Theoretically, it was a loan, but a loan that like had no interest and didn't really have to get paid back quickly at all. It's a very, very slow loan. 
about $13 billion in aid and goods, which, by the way, this is 1940 money, so that's like infinity dollars. Okay, maybe not infinity dollars, but several hundred billion, uh, several hundred billion that go to, um, well, several hundred billion adjusted for inflation, 13 billion in Western Europe, that pretty much go to any Western European country that wants it. Honestly, any European country that wants it. Uh, that's kind of the tricky thing about it. If America were to say, hey, Russian, uh, hey, Russia, hey, Eastern Bloc countries, uh, you're not allowed to have this money, Russia can use that as propaganda. I mean, remember, so much of the Cold War is like propaganda, hearts, minds, spirit, you know, what are we doing? Uh, however, America's like, look, if any country wants this money, all you got to do is ask. And Russia is like, oh, God, you know, uh, we, 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 oh, we can't do this. We can't make them do it. So um, that, that, that's, what, that's what happens here. Uh, so still a lot of Western European countries do take it. It's pretty popular. Um, it's actually very popular. Uh, the only people who don't really like the plan that are Republicans in this time period. Republicans don't like it because they say it, it costs too much money. Um, but most Americans like it. Most Americans actually like it. Uh, farmers love it because they're getting paid. They're still getting paid. Uh, basically, uh, food is a big thing that Europe needs a lot of because most of the you know farms and factories were destroyed during World War II. So farmers are like, "This is awesome. We you know we get to like sell even more stuff. It's going over to, to you know to Germany where you know our, our wheat is being turned into bread. That's perfect. Uh, it also does raise taxes. To be fair." The money was eventually paid back most of the time, but without a lot of interest, so it really was kind of a net negative, but still, whatever. Uh, the one place this does get tested, by the way, it is very popular. If you can see, um, if you go over one slide, you're going to see uh, German, actually, that is German uh, propaganda about the Marshall Plan, Der Marshall Plan, uh, you know, Hilf Europe. Uh, for, for Europe, basically, for the United States, we're giving you aid, that sort of thing. The one place it does get kind of testy is Berlin. Uh, for reasons you probably know about, Berlin was split into several parts because yeah, it was too important for Russia or the United States to claim for its own. So basically, uh, the, the Soviets were hoping that West Berlin was going to starve and go communist. Uh, they actually blocked the roads because Berlin is in East Germany, but is West Berlin is eh, it's complicated. But basically, they blockade the roads, so basically um, Americans cannot get in to, to, Ber to West Berlin. Uh, America basically takes to the air. They, they send the bombers that had been used to drop bombs, if you go over one slide, on, on Berlin. They used it to drop, like, candy and food and teddy bears and all sorts of things with no weapons. Uh, that was the thing. They, they couldn't have weapons because the Russians were like, oh, that's a warplane. So they couldn't carry bombs or any guns on these planes, even though they were warplanes. Uh, they had to make sure that there are no weapons, and basically they dropped foodstuffs. This goes on for about a year. The, um, the, the, the Berlin Airlift is what it's called. It goes on for about a year. It shows that this war, this Cold War, is not going to be about force, but showing the general populace who makes you feel better. Who do you like? Um, who, who, you know, who, who, who makes you feel better about yourself? Is it the U.S. or is it the Russians? That's something the Gaddis book, I think, does a pretty good job of explaining. The idea that you know Russia uh, you know, appeals to your fears, but America appeals to your dreams. And the USSR definitely gets egg on its face. You know, whenever they're starving, there's a big famine, a big crop failure that happens shortly thereafter this. So, like, East Berlin begins starving, East Russia, uh, East Germany begins starving, and America's like, y'all can have the Marshall Plan, y'all can have it, but Russia refuses to have it. 
So in the midst of all this, it's still election time. It is still election time. It's 1948. Uh, isolationism is still the most popular thing with the country and Republicans who are not crazy with all the spending. Uh, even though it's popular with a lot of Americans, most general Americans, you know, especially those who are getting these big fat subsidies from the Marshall Plan. I mean, farmers love the Marshall Plan, but most Americans, most Republicans are like, look, isolationism is what we want. We don't want to get sucked into another war with Europe. Um, also, they're not crazy with all the spending. And so the Republicans, uh, they, they nominate Thomas Dewey yet again. Thomas Dewey, you'll see him right there. Uh, nice mustache. He is the Republican governor of New York. He had been like the attorney general of New York City and New York State. Um, he never really criticizes Truman on foreign policy stuff. He actually criticizes him more on domestic issues. Uh, he really criticizes Truman on domestic issues. That's where Truman is very vulnerable. The demilitarization of the New Deal. Well, not demilitarization, but the de-escalation in spending is not too popular. Um, he really seems like he's very easy pickings. Uh, remember, you know, Truman, there have been Democrats in the White House for almost 20 years at this point. Um, Truman is really not popular, despite his programs. He's, he's too middle way. He isolates, he isolates, uh, he, I, he isolates, there we go, uh, both extremes, but nobody really likes him that much. So, uh, Dewey doesn't really campaign all that hard. Um, fairly famous election that it looks like Dewey has a very easy chance of winning this one. Uh, he's, you know, he's played the part for a while. He's been very presidential for a while. Seems to be waiting in the wings to become president. Uh, Thomas Dewey, he, he's very popular. Uh, everybody thinks he's going to win, especially because the Democrats split. Uh, the Democrats actually split three ways, well, three ways, including Truman. So there are two big splits in the Democratic Party. The first one is Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace, uh, a former vice president of FDR who had started to criticize um, FDR for various reasons. He is to the left of Truman. Remember, Truman's a very middle way guy. He is to the left of Truman. Uh, how do I say he's to the tr left? Uh, Henry Wallace actually wants more New Deal and he wants to have appeasement with Moscow. He says, the Russians, they don't really bother me. We could have appeasement. We could just chill. We could hang out with them. It's fine. You know, they're not going to come by our shores. Com is communism really that big of a threat? I don't really care. Wrestle the world can go to hell. Let's just focus on America, New Deal spending. So that's Henry Wallace. He's to the left of Truman. Um, Wallace splits to form the progressive, well, join the progressive party. He doesn't form the progressive party. He joins the progressive party. And then to the right, to the right of Truman, on the Democratic Party, you have Strom Thurmond. Uh, Strom Thurmond, seen there being Strom Thurmony, he is a firebrand uh, senator from South Carolina. Um, he eventually is in his hundreds as a senator, like, well within your lifetimes. Like, well, in the 2000s. In the 2000s. He might have died shortly after you were born. But Strom Thurmond was a senator from South Carolina for forever. Um, he becomes known whenever he does the longest filibuster in Senate history resisting the, state, uh, the Civil Rights Act, a Civil Rights Act that Truman is trying to do. He resists it. He basically puts on a filibuster that goes on for, like, ever. Uh, basically, he is wholeheartedly for segregation, uh, for what they call states' rights. He forms the states—well, he, he actually does form the states' right party. 
uh, better known as the Dixiecrats, Southern Democrats, Dixiecrat, Dixiecrat. Uh, they're arguing for smaller government and mainly resistance to desegregation. Uh, this is not the high civil rights movement by any point in time, by any stretch of the imagination, but there is some preliminary mobilization for what's later going to become the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, Brown v. Board happens in 57. This is post double uh, post v campaign, post Brown v. Board. And so it's very much a mobilization time for civil rights, and resistance has already started. Really, really, um, really exemplified by Strom Thurmond. Remember, uh, when, when Harry Truman had desegregated the um, army bases, the military bases, most military bases are in the South. And so basically you're having an enforced desegregation place in the South, which by and large had enforced segregation. Uh, Truman is incredibly not popular. His own party is split, you know, three ways. So you have Truman in the middle, you have Wallace on the left, you have um, Strom Thurmond on the right. Dewey is not even campaigning. He's, well, he is campaigning. He's not campaigning that hard. Everybody thinks Dewey's going to win. You know, he goes to bed on election night thinking that he's won. Um, apparently, at some point in the night, somebody comes to tell him the election results, and his, his bodyguard is like, sorry, Mr. President is sleeping. And the guy's like, well, tell Mr. President he's not Mr. President, because if you go over one more slide, you will see the famous headline, uh, Dewey defeats Truman. No, he does not. Dewey does not defeat Truman. Truman somehow ekes out a victory. How that happens, it's bonkers. We don't know. Well, we do know. It, you know come on. We, we know how he does it. Uh, basically, polling was uh, kind of skewed toward the upper classes, who Truman uh, was not getting, but Truman was getting the lower classes, who were less likely to be polled. They came out pretty in high numbers. They kind of like him. So even though he is deeply unpopular, uh, Truman wins re-election just before the bad year, 1949. Go over one slot. Now, I call it 1949 the bad year. I call it 1949 the bad year. Uh, it's mainly because a lot of things happen, and some of them are not that great for the United States. Really sets the tenor of the Cold War. Uh, the first thing that happens in 1949, which may or may not be bad, depending on your uh, perspective, is that uh, the United States joins NATO. They join NATO. It's the first time the United States had joined a peacetime military alliance. This had never happened before. Uh, the United States had historically been strongly against isolationism. But NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or if you do it under the NATO alphabet, November Alpha Tango Oscar, that, that's a joke, just, just know the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, NATO was a peacetime military alliance where basically said an attack on one member was considered an attack on all members. And it basically signaled to Europe that the United States would continue to support it against Russian aggression. The idea being that if any country in NATO was attacked by Russia, it would be considered an attack at all. And so now, you know what? It's time for the, you know, for, for Russia to be resisted against. Now, in response to this, Russia begins what's known as the Warsaw Pact, which is kind of like the coalition of the Russian-controlled countries. By this time, we're getting to the Soviet Union, and you start to have more satellite states. Basically, these countries like Yugoslavia, East Germany, etc., that um, they're, they're not Russia, but they're dominated by the Soviet Union. Now, this was actually opposed by some Republicans for various reasons, uh, particularly the isolation reason. Also, they said it was going to cost too much money, theoretically speaking. NATO said that all countries should spend 2% of their GDP on membership fees. 
military spending. Um, that's been an issue in the past couple of years. Uh, however, this is passed despite some resist- resistance by um, Amer- uh, Republicans, mainly because nobody can look weak towards the Russians. You know, if you were to say like, "Oh no, we shouldn't do this." Oh, so you like Russia now? Oh, oh, oh no, it's, it seems like political suicide. That's really not the bad thing. Um, the bad things that happen. Well, the first thing that happens. Uh, China happens. China happens. China had actually been having a civil war since before World War II. Uh, before World War II, China had been having a civil war. Uh, both sides actually put their issues aside because the Japanese occupied them. So you have a war going on in China before the uh, World War II. It's a civil war. Uh, Japan occupies them. Both sides kind of like, all right, we're, we're going to stop fighting for a little bit so we can fight Japan. But once Japan's out of it, uh, they're having a big fight going on. Uh, the two sides, who actually are pictured together because they once knew each other, uh, you got, for the Chinese nationalists, you have Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, before this time, China had had an emperor. However, the emperor had been deposed, so you have this new Chinese leadership led by Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek was the U.S.'s ally throughout all World War II, longtime ally. Um, culturally, he wasn't necessarily in line with a lot of the rest of China. Um, he is a Christian. Most Chinese people are not Christian. If, if they're anything, they might be, you know, traditional Chinese beliefs, maybe some Buddhism thrown in there, but not too many Chinese are Christian. He is Christian. Uh, his wife, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, um, if, I think she might be American, but if she's not American, she's definitely Western educated. So you have, the, you know, you have him leading them. Uh, he's been a strong guy for China throughout World War II. However, he is unpopular, but he is anti-communist, which is one of the reasons why the U.S. supports him. Now, the U.S. does not support him too hard against Mao Zedong. Uh, Mao Zedong, seen on the right, Chairman Mao, you might know him as later. Uh, Mao Zedong is a communist. He is a communist out of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, he has no love for the West. I, I should iterate that. He has no love for the West. Yes, he understands that the U.S., you know, help was China's ally, helped kick the Japanese out. But as much as he hates Japan, he has no real love for the United States, for the West in general. And basically, now that the war is over, and the U.S. is not too interested in supporting China, which is going to come back to bite them in the rear a little bit. Um, spoiler, the loss of China. The loss of China, because China in 1949, bad year, uh, Mao Zedong declares the People's Republic of China. Basically, the communists win the Civil War, they take over China, and Chiang Kai-shek flees to the island of Formosa and renames it Taiwan. It's actually been known as Taiwan here and there. But Taiwan, he claims, is the real China. Uh, the U.S. says it's the real China. It joins the United Nations. It gets really complicated really quick. Um, I'm not going to get too deep into this, but j- what you need to know is that it becomes a mess. It becomes a giant mess. You know, the relations between the U.S. and China and Taiwan get a lot more complicated. Also, um, this is really seen as unforgivable by Republicans. Um, you know, they talk, with all the talk of containment theory and all this stuff, they let China fall. This was the unforgivable sin that Truman does. Truman commits the unforgivable sin. He loses China. Now, why is the loss of China so important? Two reasons. Number one. They were the U.S.'s ally. They were an ally all throughout World War II. In fact, the reason why China was involved in Western affairs at all, in world affairs at all, was because of the open-door policy spearheaded by the United States. So the U.S. was a longtime ally to this modern version of China. And all of a sudden, it wasn't like it was Greece or, you know, Turkey. This was China. This was 
This is one of our big allies. This was one of the big five of World War II. Um, yes, we always talk about the big three in World War II of England, uh, America, and Russia, but also France, who was occupied, was a part of that, and so was China, who was also occupied. But the main reason why the Republicans were so despondent about this is because China has over a billion people. That's a billion consumers. That's a billion people to send market stuff to. And this was, this was unforgivable. This is how Truman becomes seen as too weak. They thought if Truman was a better person, he would be able to do something for the Chinese. So now Chairman Mao's taken over. Here's a funny little meme I saw about Mao. There's Mao and El Mayo. Okay, it's a laughing Mao. Whatever, whatever. Ha, huh, I thought it was funny. But later in 1949, um, Russia is got the atomic bomb. Russia announces it has the atomic bomb. Uh, basically, this is not too surprising. People are not as despondent about this as um, people expected Russia to get it eventually. Uh, they just didn't expect it so soon. They did not expect it so, so soon. They knew that Russia had spies and stuff in, in the United States. They knew that Russia was working on, the, on an atomic bomb. They thought it'd be at least 10 years or so. They thought it'd be at least 10 years before Russia would have the capacity to make an atomic bomb. This would get the United States very entrenched. It would have the ultimate trump card. It would be the reason why America could win the Cold War fairly quickly. Now Russia has the bomb. Remember, Russia having a bomb is not that controversial. They expect it to happen eventually. They just didn't expect it so soon. And the U.S. has to figure out what are they going to do with themselves now that they've lost the trump card. And it looks like the Cold War is going to be a much harder conflict to win. And that's where we get into Korea. Uh, you have one more slide. You're going to see Korea divided into north and south. Um, I, I provided you a second podcast about this. It's uh, done by NPR. Very, very well done. Gives you a lot of background information about Korea and also you know what, what happened and how it moderately influences but a few things I want you to, uh, to think about uh, just when it comes to Korea. Number one, uh, Korea was never hailed as central to U.S. security. I, I can't iterate that enough. Even Keenan said the U.S. shouldn't bother with Korea. Korea was, get me wrong, China, losing China was a big deal. But the idea that Korea, you know, the small peninsular country of Korea going communist, especially with the loss of China, was not viewed as that big of a threat. Still, I think uh, Truman was a little bit... Uh, over-eager to prove that he wasn't just the guy who loses countries of communism, particularly, you know, large Asian countries. Well, Asian countries, not a large Asian country. Uh, Korea's not very big. Uh, also, I should mention that this is a UN operation. This is a UN operation. This is theoretically not just the United States, even though the U.S. really takes the, uh, the lead on this. Uh, it was a UN operation in that the Russians, who have a seat on the UN Security Council, a permanent seat, and a veto power, they actually leave their seat. Uh, they leave their seat on this. They basically, they don't want to risk the idea that, oh, we're going to veto it and cause resentment, might, you know, exasperate things in the Cold War. So they just leave for the time being. This also allows the U.S. to say this is not just a U.S. action, this is a world action. But not really. <laughs> not really. This is pretty much a U.S. action. Uh, there was some talk of using uh, nuclear weapons. Um, Gaddis in the book, which you which you will read, he does talk about you know the possibility of the United States using uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, there wasn't really as much as of a, I don't want to say taboo, but like the stigma of using nuclear weapons at this time. The main reason why they weren't used was that they just weren't strategically valuable. Um, 
for a place like Korea, which doesn't have the you know the large um, industrialized areas uh, that a place like Japan has or the large cities, um, and plus the the kind of guerrilla nature of the warfare, a nuclear weapon would have been overkill. It, ju- it just would not have been of strategic value. Now, if, if you look at these individuals, you go over one slide, you're going to see the guy in charge of North Korea and the guy in South Korea. Uh, Kim Il-sung is a guy for North Korea. Sigmund Rhee is the one for South Korea. Uh, I cannot iterate this enough. The podcast talks a lot about this, but but Kim, Kim Il-sung is a bit of a folk hero for the Koreans, North and South, for what he does during World War II. As the podcast talks about, Rhee was in the United States for most of World War II. Um, he was not on the ground. He's a much older figure. Kim Il-sung is on the ground. He's on the ground. He's the one resisting the, the Japanese, um, you know, fighting against the Japanese. And he, you know, the, the Americans kind of uh, rig the election because they know Ri will not win in a, in, a, in, a, in a fair election against Kim Il-sung. Now, the, if the name Kim Il-sung sounds familiar, that's right. His grandson, Kim Jong-un, is uh, now part of, <laughs> now head of North Korea. Uh, Kim Jong-il was his son, who is it, and his grandson, Kim Jong-un, is the one who is now in charge of it. So Kim Il-sung, the Kim family, uh, very, very, very um, influential family. And pretty much Korea now, North Korea at least, is a bit of a dictatorship with absolute rule. Uh, now, when the Chinese get involved in this, you're going to hear more about this podcast, so I'm not going to spoil anything for you. Plus, Gaddis talks about it. Uh, the Chinese getting involved was a bit of a surprise. Uh, a bit of a surprise whenever the Chinese get involved, the Chinese start sending in soldiers, and those would have surprised. Uh, the main thing that really gets into this is the contention between Truman and MacArthur. Uh, Truman and MacArthur have a lot of contention. Mainly, MacArthur feels handcuffed by Truman. He feels that, you know, I'm not allowed to use nuclear weapons. I'm not allowed to... He doesn't really care as much about nuclear weapons. Even he understands that they have really not that much strategic value. But I'm not allowed to go into China which would violate the, uh, the original UN agreement. And basically, Truman dismissing MacArthur is a bit of a turning point. It also pretty much Truman dead after this. Uh, the Korean War, like I said, the NPR podcast goes into much detail about it. Um, it's a stalemate. I mean, theoretically, the Korean War hasn't really ended. They've just called a truce uh, with the idea that we're going to negotiate a ending um, you know, a peace agreement later. They've not done that yet. But what you do want to know is that Truman is pretty much politically dead after this. Uh, he has really no chance of being a, uh, reelected. Uh, he is broke. He has like no real chance, period, of being reelected. He gets a pension. We talked about that earlier. Basically, Hoover agrees to take one uh, just to save face. Just to save face, he gets into that. Now, in the immediate after this aftermath of this, we have some red scares. We have some red scares that happen. There are several red scares that happen in this time period. Um, you have the lavender scare. You have you have all sorts of various scares that come into that. We'll get into that with conformity culture when we talk about that. But there's a great fear within the United States that maybe we are susceptible to communists. Maybe we're susceptible to communists. Maybe we're susceptible to uh, blackmail, you know, maybe we might have the communists overthrow the United States. It's a possibility of that happening. As I said, there are several Red Scares. I'm only going to focus on a few of them. Um, the big ones that really have kind of bigger impact. Uh, if you go over one side, you're going to see Alger Hiss. Uh, Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers, that's one of the first really big ones. Um, Alger Hiss had been uh, FDR's body man during the Yalta Conference. He had been in contact with the Russians as part of his... Um, duties 
part of his duties as uh, during World War II. Like I said, this is not too not too too surprising whatsoever. Um, he is accused of being a spy by Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers is a former member of the Communist Party. Um, Alger Hiss, you can see, a very, very trim trim individual. Apparently he was unflappable. Whitaker Chambers was overweight, slovenly. Um, former member of the Communist Party. You know, he, he admitted that he was a former communist. And he claimed that the reason that he and Hiss knew, that he knew this about Hiss was that he and Hiss had been lovers, like gay lovers. This was kind of shocking for the time period. Um, I'm not saying there were no homosexuals, but the idea of, like, out homosexuals didn't really happen too, too much at this point in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, you know, ultimately, um, Hiss is acquitted of this. Um, Chambers pretty much has his reputation ruined. There is evidence that maybe Hiss might have been a spy for the Russians. It's kind of iffy about that. Uh, the main reason I want you to know about this, though, this is what really puts Richard Nixon on the map. We're going to talk about Richard Nixon much later. But Richard Nixon really kind of becomes known as this kind of young, um, anti-communist fighter in this time period. Richard Nixon, kind of an important figure, particularly when we get later into the 60s and 70s in the United States. Uh, this is where he kind of cuts his teeth as a young Republican, this idea that he is Mr. Anti-Communism. Now, another one I'm going to not get too much into, go over one slide. This is the Hollywood ones. Uh, there is fear that in Hollywood there's a bunch of leftists. They might be, like, putting all sorts of left-leaning things into movies, um, possibly verging on communism. Uh, a lot of screenwriters, not too many actors are caught on of this, mainly screenwriters, directors. <coughs> um, you know, some of them are charged with contempt of Congress because they won't name names of who are the people they're with. They may or may not be communists. They're almost all left with sympathizers. Uh, the reason I want you to know about this, this is what puts Ronald Reagan on the map. Ronald Reagan, this time period, he had been an actor. Uh, by this time, he is the president of the Screen Actors Guild. He's the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and he names names. He names all the names. Um, he doesn't you know, keep quiet. He says everything. Even though he's a Democrat at this time, he had been a New Deal Democrat. He starts kind of shifting over into politics. He's not full on into politics yet. He will be. But basically, this kind of alienates him with a lot of uh, Hollywood people and starts endearing him more to this more um, Orange County, um, Los Angeles suburb site individuals. Just know that he, this is where he kind of gets his start. All right? Now let's get to the one you want to know about, Joseph McCarthy. Oh, good old Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was actually pretty young. I know he looks old as hell in that picture. Um but he's actually only like 41 or so whenever this happens. Late 30s, early 40s. Uh, rough looking late 40s, uh, early, early, late 40s, early 30s, I would say. Uh, he had been a tail gunner during World War II. He's, he's one of these young World War II generation. Uh, he was known as Tail Gunner Joe because, you know, he had been a tail gunner. Uh, tail gunner is a job, basically, on airplanes that was kind of a dangerous job. Um, mortality rates were pretty high, but, you know, he's known for being a scrapper, a fighter. Um, he is the junior senator from Wisconsin, fairly young to be a senator, fairly young to be a senator. Uh, he gets his Senate seat, though, by slinging all sorts of mud. Uh, he is known as a mudslinger, muckraker. Basically, he, he really starts attacking his opponent, La Follette, who had been a longtime senator of, uh, of Wisconsin for actually decades by this point. 
Uh, he slings all the mud at Lefollette, and before Lefollette could um, could actually respond to it, he slings even more. And so he he get he comes to Washington, and he comes to Washington as a junior senator. Now, don't get me wrong, all right. I'm not speaking ill of senators. There there are a hundred of them, very high important position. But everything in Washington is about seniority. It's all about how long have you been with the party, how long have you been in Congress, that sort of thing. And as the junior senator from Wisconsin, yes, he you know got elected over LaFollette, which is a big deal, and being a senator is a big deal. But he feels when he gets to Washington, he is being disrespected. He feels that people aren't making a big enough deal about him, that it's not enough big enough splash. He feels like, you know, I'm a war hero. I'm this young guy. I'm coming in. I'm strong. I'm a scrapper. I'm a fighter. And when he gets to D.C., he's like, nobody cares about me. He feels like he's not getting the respect he deserves. He's like, look, I defeated a longtime senator. And pretty much everybody in the party, everybody in the country, everybody, not in the country because they don't really know who he is, they're like, yeah, we don't care, whatever. So because he feels disrespected, he decides to throw a live bomb into the fray. (coughs) Because in February of 1950, he is giving a speech at the most unlikely of venues uh, to make a major political announcement. Uh, He is making a speech to the Women's Republican, sorry, the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, on Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Um, Abraham Lincoln had been a Republican. He's kind of viewed as the prototypical Republican of this time period. Abraham Lincoln's birthday was viewed as a um, holiday for Republicans, a big fundraising day, kind of a day to, you know, kind of uh, energize your base using the modern day uh, language. And so he is giving a speech at the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia. Now, no offense to the women of Wheeling, West Virginia. I'm sure the Republican women of Wheeling, West Virginia are a very fine group of people. They, they seem very nice. Um, however, look, McCarthy feels like he's disrespected by this. He feels like, you know, I, I should be giving a bigger speech. You know, I, I won against this longtime senator. I'm the future of the Republican Party. And yet for, for Lincoln's birthday, I'm at this snoozer of a place giving a boilerplate speech. Supposed to be really boring. I mean, nothing happens at the women, sorry, the Republican Women's Club. It's a ladies who lunch club. I mean, if you look at the, the members of this in this time period, uh, it, it's back when they referred to women by their husbands' names. Like, oh, it's Miss John Smith and Miss, you know, Chad Jones or whatever. So it, it's, like I said, there's, <laughs> this is a very hoity-toity, ladies who lunch. You know, they invite public officials to come in to give snoozer speeches. This is supposed to be pretty, pretty boilerplate. Now, during this speech, he makes a crazy announcement. And because this is so low stakes in the speech, we don't have many, like, transcripts of this. This was not recorded. Uh, the details that come out of this is a lot of hearsay, a lot of, um, you know, the old rumor mill or playing telephone when you're a kid. It, it kind of grows in the telling. But during this speech, which is supposed to be the most boring of speeches, you know, hooray for Republicans, Abraham Lincoln, he announces, hey, communists have infiltrated the federal government. That's a live bomb. To say in front of the wonderful ladies of Wheeling, West Virginia, yo, we got communists all up in the federal government. And also, I have a list of them. 
He claims that I have a list of card-carrying members of the Communist Party. Not just secret communists, but card-carrying members of the Communist Party working in the State Department. Uh, the State Department, the one that deals with foreign affairs, the one that deals with diplomacy and things like that. He says he's got a list. This is a live bomb. Now, the thing is, as I said, this speech was not recorded. There is no transcript. So the actual details are pretty sparse. What we do know is he gave a speech. Uh, he might have claimed 57 people. He might have claimed 206. Every time MacArthur seems to talk, the number grows and grows. Now, the numbers don't matter. The accuracy doesn't matter. Because the impact was made. All of a sudden, Joseph McCarthy is at the top of the political world. All of a sudden, all that attention and pomp and circumstance he felt like he hadn't got for being elected as a senator, he's now getting. He is now like the most uh, in-demand person in all of D.C. He starts attacking everybody. He, already, he starts attacking everybody. That kind of scrappiness comes in. Uh, he attacks everyone. Mainly, he calls, quote, liberals and, quote, egg-haired elitist, end quote. Uh, he says that basically they're the ones that are ruining this country, this kind of anti-intellectualism, anti-liberalism. But he also really starts attacking the more moderate members of the Republican Party. He says the more moderate members of the Republican Party are the reason why all these people have been able to infiltrate the government. We're not being vigilant. Now, this is a very common rhetoric device. This is a very common thing in politics. Uh, maybe think about amongst yourselves where you've seen this before, not just in the United States, but all over the world. It's a very effective way to get popularity, to get power. Claim that there's a problem, but also that you're the cure. That's a way they can do it. Commercials do it all the time. They make you, they make you aware of a problem. They make you aware of a problem. They make you feel, um, you know, unsettled about something. They make you feel um, self-conscious about something. But now you're the cure. But they give you the cure, too. And that's what McCarthy is doing. He's scaring the crippity crap out of Americans about these supposed communists all up in the government. But he's also saying, I'm the cure. And the, 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 I should mention the loss of China is very evident in his rhetoric. It's super evident in his rhetoric that, there, that he is feeling this loss of China. Um, basically, the rhetoric that he says that, is that, quote, communists and queers sold four mil, four, sorry, 400 million Asiatic people into atheist slavery. Okay, a lot going on there. First of all, it was not 400 million. It was closer to a billion. But he claims that the reason that the... Uh, Asiatic peoples are in atheistic or atheist surgery, uh, slavery, not surgery, that's weird. Slavery is because of the communist and queers. Uh, I should mention the lavender scare. Uh, the lavender scare also comes in this time period. Basically, the State Department, a little before McCarthy's time, they go on a massive purge within the uh, State Department and other federal government agencies, uh, kicking out homosexuals. Kicking out homosexuals. The fear is that homosexuals might be susceptible to blackmail because they have a secret life. And basically, they start uh, interrogating a lot of people within the State Department, finding out if they're gay. If they are gay, they lose their job. Well, sorry. You either get outed as a homosexual, which is like social suicide, family suicide, societal suicide this time period, or you get fired and lose your pension. A lot of gay people lose their jobs in this time period. The Lavender Scare, um, I wish I had more time to talk about it, but this, pod, this lecture's gone on long enough, so let's kind of hurry it on. Um, this hearing 
comes up though, because Bantley um, he says, you know what, I need to start having congressional hearings. Um, this this is one of the first things televised on television. Uh, TV is coming about in this time period. And by the way, a lot of Americans believe him. A lot of Americans believe him. Uh, they felt that uh, he was doing the country a service. About 80% of the country believed him. And 45% believed that he was a hero. And so for a time in the 50s, Eisenhower, is, not Eisenhower, woo not Eisenhower, Eisenhower is what hints him. McCarthy is really, really powerful Really kind of the embodiment of all politics in the United States, leading these witch hunts. You've probably read The Crucible in high school or whatever. I don't need to get into that. So what ultimately ends him? What ends him? Well, a couple things. Uh, the first one is when he starts going up against the army. When he starts going up against the uh, army. You can see, if you go over one slide, him and basically some of these hearings. I love the dude on the left. The le- dude on the left is my favorite person. He's like, oh, Jesus Christ, what is this guy saying? Um, he goes up against the army. Um... He starts claiming maybe Eisenhower has some issues. Maybe Eisenhower has communist sympathies. This is pretty much suicide because Eisenhower didn't respond. Eisenhower said pretty much, I refuse to get into a pissing contest with a skunk, end quote. I just love that. The idea is like, you know what? I'm not even going to honor that with a response. Uh, La Follette was trying to respond, but it was too slow because McCarthy kept attacking him. Eisenhower's like, look, I'm freaking, I'm freaking Eisenhower. I, I'm, I'm freaking, I'm freaking Dwight D. Eisenhower. You're going to question if I fight communism? You're going to question my toughness? I'm the guy that, like, did D-Day. I'm the guy, I'm Mr. World War II, so yeah. Uh. There's another time where, uh, basically, MacArthur on television is grilling this young man. He, I believe he was a JAG officer in the Army who had been a part of a leftist society back in college. And basically, it's not even communist, just like a, a like a labor organization. And basically, somebody else at the hearing is like, you know, McCarthy, have you no sense of decency, sir? Like, you, you've ruined this kid's life. Why are you doing this? You're, you're just, you're being, have you no sense of decency? There's applause. This is kind of a turning point for McCarthy. Ultimately, he is censured by the Senate. They say that he goes too far. Uh, the censure of the Senate is pretty much what ends him. By the time you get to 1957, only a couple of years later, uh, he's dead. He is dead. Well, only just a few years after his, his New York rise of fa- fame, he is dead uh, of alcoholism. Uh, basically, alcohol destroyed him pretty much in his life. He only dies at age 48. He is super young during all this, super young, but he is an alcoholic, uh, not helped by his basically censure, and basically he becomes a boogeyman pretty quickly. So now we're going to end talking about Eisenhower. Just talking about Eisenhower, Dwight David Eisenhower, getting him into office. Uh, Eisenhower's an interesting cat. He comes from the great state of Kansas. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see him when he's a young cadet. Uh, he comes from Kansas, very middle America place. He had been a football standout for Army, um, although he should have never been able to attend West Point. Uh, ironically, both he and Truman have that in common is that uh, they both should not have been able to, well, they both had medical issues. However, Eisenhower doesn't in West Point. Um, Eisenhower has major heart issues. He has heart issues that modern days would have kept him from being um, in the military period, let alone a general, let alone our most important general during World War II. Uh, still, he, he, he is involved in West Point. He actually misses combat in World War I. Even though he had been in the military, he is a very much a career Army guy. 
Um, didn't really seem to be going much of anywhere in his military career, to be, to be fair, before World War II. Not really going much of anywhere. He's not one of the most um, dynamic generals by any stretch. He actually had been involved with dealing with the Bonus Army under Hoover, which actually should have killed his political career. Uh, still, he gets commissions in World War II. This is going to sound weird, uh, mainly because he's not really offensive. Uh, there is some much more dynamic, dramatic, and kind of um, oh, prickly personalities of the generals in World War II, people like Patton, people like MacArthur. Um, they can rub people the wrong way. Eisenhower doesn't rub people the wrong way. Now, once he starts getting his commissions in World War II, they're not too dramatic. Um, they're not actually. He has some missteps early on. Uh, for instance, early on, he collaborates with a Nazi um, sympathetic, a guy who is sending uh, stuff to the Nazis. He's a French admiral who is a total Nazi um, individual. Um, however, that that French admiral dies. So basically, Eisenhower's hands are kind of clean. He's like, "Whoops, all right, my bad." Uh, however, he's quietly getting more and more esteem. Kind of as, as it goes on, Eisenhower's very quietly during the war uh, gaining a bit more um, esteem, respect, that sort of thing. It's still a shock, though, whenever he's picked over George Marshall to lead the Allied invasion of France. Uh, that's how I'm most familiar with Eisenhower. I'm not familiar with him. He was long dead by the time I was born, but I do a lot of stuff in the D-Day Museum. Well, sorry, with the World War II Museum. For D-Day, if you go over one side, you're going to see him before D-Day. Uh, he's the one who's put in charge of the Allied invasion of France. There he becomes a hero. There he becomes a hero. Um, really effective, um, you know, invasion of France. I, I can really get into D-Day stuff because I talk all about D-Day stuff, but one of the reasons why D-Day is so successful is because the Germans don't think Eisenhower would lead it. They think somebody dynamic like, uh, like Patton or something would lead it. And so whenever they see that Eisenhower is mobilizing, they don't think it's anything because it's Eisenhower. Eisenhower does very well uh, in D-Day, the Allied invasion of France, uh, all that. And then he you know, starts the invasion of Germany. He becomes a hero. The British actually offer him a knighthood. He refuses, but he is offered a knighthood. Uh, he is a very easy choice, if you go over one more slide, for 1952. Super easy choice for 1952. Very easy choice. Um, how do you know that you're probably going to win the presidency? I'll tell you how. When both parties offer you the nomination. Um, Republicans offer him the nomination. Democrats offer him the nomination. If that happens, you're probably going to win. Everybody knew he was going to become president. He's very popular. He ultimately does choose the Republicans. Uh, he claims that he is an old school Republican at heart. Kind of the... You know, no spending, no big government, high tariff, big business. Uh, the, another reason why he's picked by both sides is because uh, they believe he's going to be tough on the Russians. You know, they think that Stalin is going to respect him. Uh, he'd be very strong for the military. You know, he's a military hero. Uh, and, and I mentioned this when I began this lecture. Americans are kind of prone to hero worship of overly successful generals. Um you know, I talked about like people who seem to be on deck to become president, Washington, Jackson, William Henry Harrison. I mean, that's a guy who dies in 30 days, but when he becomes president, he's very popular because of Tipper Canoe. Uh, Zachary Taylor uh, from the Mexican War. He, he dies shortly after, too, but still. Uh, U.S. Grant. U.S. Grant, a guy who had no business being anywhere remotely near the presidency um, just for his administrative abilities. He becomes president because of the Civil War. Pretty common. 
Uh, even the southern states vote for him. Not in huge numbers, but some southern states vote for him. The, Demo- the Democrats do run somebody, but you don't really need to know about him. It's not too important. Uh, he seems to be the anti-communist guy and somebody that even Stalin would respect. Uh, if you look right there, you're going to see who they add to the ticket to basically balance out uh, the ticket so it's not too moderate, so basically conservatives and super Republicans don't feel upset. They add young Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon is now vice president of the United States. Very easy election for for Eisenhower. Eisenhower gets some of the biggest uh, popular, popular vote in electoral college numbers that ever happen. Like I said, he seems to be the ultimate anti-communist. Uh, Nixon is also Mr. Anti-Communism. Somebody that Stalin would respect. Somebody that he could speak strong to Stalin to. Uh, in fact, Stalin does Eisenhower a bit of a favor and dies about a month after Eisenhower enters office. So that's so much the better. <laughs> now, if we go over one slide, the last thing we're going to talk about, I swear this is the last thing we're going to talk about. I know this is kind of long, but uh, yeah, it's probably two in one, but you're going to get it. Uh, basically, Eisenhower is comfortable using the CIA. Uh, Truman never liked covert ops. Uh, Truman always wanted to do things on the up and up. He was like, you know, we need to get the UN to do this before we come to Korea. I'm not, I'm not comfortable doing wet work. I'm not comfortable with sneaky things. Uh, go in front of the American people to do this. Um, Truman never trusted the CIA. He never trusted, trusted like spy stuff and co-op ops. He, he thought it was un-American. Eisenhower never really had a problem with it. Uh, he worked with the OSS, which was the predecessor to the CIA, uh, all throughout World War II. All throughout World War II, the predecessor to the CIA was doing spy stuff, uh, the OSS, and Eisenhower worked with him. He was like, these guys are awesome. Uh, wet work is great. Spies are wonderful. As much as we want. And he's really okay with the CIA doing stuff to really influence the Cold War. If you go over one slide, we're going to talk about the biggest success, very briefly, of Eisenhower's early days, and with the CIA, and that's in Iran. All right? In Iran. Iran, the last time we talked about it, was basically Russia was in there uh, trying to occupy it because they needed the oil. Um, they eventually do leave, but still there's there's chance that the Russians might come back because they want the oil. So basically, uh, Eisenhower wants somebody installed as a leader of Iran who doesn't like the Russians and is going to be a U.S. ally. He does. He does. He installs the guy on the right, the Shah of Iran. The Shah, he's got a longer name. You don't need to know the longer name. Just Shah. S-H-A-H. Iran becomes a pretty big issue in the Cold War and nowadays. Uh, This is a very complex story. This is a complex story, but basically there is a prime minister of Iran who wanted the U.S. out. They wanted the U.S. out. out. They wanted the U.S. to get out of their affairs. He wasn't whole hog on the Russians uh, coming in immediately, but he had some Russian sympathies. This prime minister was not a communist, but he was, you know, okay with the Russians over the U.S. So basically, the CIA makes this prime minister go away. They don't kill him. They don't kill him. There are other leaders that they might kill in other countries. This time period, they make the prime minister go away. Uh, and they help install the Shah. The Shah is like a, kind of like an ancestral ruler, almost like a king or something. Uh, kind of, there's a little bit of birthright behind it. Uh, basically, uh, in, in gratitude of this, in order to get this exchanged, uh, the Shah of Iran, he cuts the Americans into the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which is an oil company that had been set up by the British. Um, ask me some time to talk about what the British do in the Middle East, because any problems we have in the Middle East now are all the British's fault. 
But basically, they set up a nationalized oil company, a nationalized oil company in Iran with the British. Uh, even though the British theoretically leave, the company is still there. And basically, uh, in gratitude, the, uh, the Shah of Iran gives America part of this oil money. Y'all know oil. Uh, that's big, big time money right there. And so the U.S. is into this. Now, what's interesting about this, the thing I want you to, tell, to, to think about is just how cheap this is. Uh, because there's a fraction of the money that was spent. Um, one of the big guys in the CIA in this time period is a man by the name of Kermit Roosevelt Jr. Kermit Roosevelt Jr. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, it should. Because he is the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt had a son named Kermit. And then Teddy Roosevelt's son Kermit had a son named Kermit Jr. Uh, Kermit was one of the early bigwigs of the early CIA. Early big with the early CIA. Um, and he has given a million dollars. He has given a million dollars for bribes and other things to get this guy uh, deposed with the assurance that you will get more money if you need it. But the main thing is he needs bribe money. Basically, he needs money to bribe the Iranian officials, mainly to get influence, mainly to do things that he could, like, you know, screw over this prime minister. Of the $1 million Kermit Roosevelt was given to overthrow this prime minister, he only uses about $100,000 of it. He uses one-tenth of the money he was given to overthrow the prime minister and install the Shah. And that's just crazy how cheap it is. And this is the Shah is going to remain in power in Iran until 1979. So for from 53 to 79, that's uh, 26 years, a pretty good time period. The Shah is in charge of Iran. Iran is theoretically an ally to the United States. So is Iraq, ironically, in this time period. It's about to get more complicated. A similar situation happens in Guatemala. That's uh, much closer to home. I'm going to end with telling you this, though. The Eisenhower does not let the U.S. public in on any of these messy things. And there's a lot of blissful ignorance that the United States has the high ground in all of this. Uh, you know, the, the general trust of Eisenhower continues throughout the 50s. We're going to get into the 50s proper uh, next class. But Eisenhower is very popular, and the United States feels that they can claim moral superiority about this. Like it's the Russians who are the bad ones. Anything that we're doing is justified. But we're going to talk about that more next class, uh, next lecture. So thank you for listening.